It's lovely to see you. This is normally one of our quietest services in the year, and uh, largely because most of the young folks, most of the young folks, are away in, most of the young folks, uh, no, 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 no. Most of the young folks and most of the youth leaders are away in um, Lendrick Muir, Soul Survivor, and uh, so we don't have a normal 6.30 as such, but we have communion in the round. But because people are away on holidays as well, it's also even quieter than normal. But it's a bit sort of ordinary to say that doesn't really matter because the Bible says that where two or three are gathered together in his name, that he's there in the midst. And uh, so Christ is here, and we want him and his death upon the cross to be central to our act of worship this evening. And uh, it's lovely that uh, Ruth is leading us in our worship again this evening, as she did this morning as well. So this evening, we're going to be thinking about a passage from Matthew 26, and that's going to provide our focus throughout the evening. So I want to read that for you just now. You'll see the slide on the screen, and it's the whole story of the agony uh, in the garden. I think most of you will realize that Jesus had just finished um, eating together with the uh, disciples, and it was nighttime, and uh, he left the upper room and uh, went outside of Jerusalem, down a little slope and across the Kidron Valley onto the lower slopes of the Mount of Olives, and there into the Garden of Gethsemane, and uh, that's where we find the the story this evening. And Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow even to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them. And went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. So let's take a moment to pray before we sing a couple of opening songs. Father, as we gather around this table tonight, it reminds us in such a clear and honest way of the death of your Son upon the cross of Calvary. The bread which we will break reminds us of your broken body. And the wine which we drink reminds us of your shed blood. And together they remind us of that awful cup of your wrath which was poured out upon the Lord Jesus as he died and suffered to take away the sin of the world. And even though we have sat around this table on so many occasions, even though we have broken bread and drink wine perhaps hundreds of times, perhaps more, 
I just pray that even tonight, this simple reflection will enable us to understand even a little bit more deeply what it is that it cost you to bear away our sin. So by your Holy Spirit, draw close to us. Help us to worship you. Help us to be grateful in our hearts for all that you have done. And at the end of this time together, may we leave this place with a stronger desire in our hearts to be the sort of children that you've called us to be as your family. So help Ruth too also as she leads us in our worship just now. May everything we say and do redound to your honor and to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. David's just read to us of the experience of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. So let's stand and sing together about that whole experience, the servant king.
have a seat for a moment. When we look at the table, it really should remind us of the incredible love that Jesus has for each one of us. If we look at this table, we look at the bread and we look at the wine and we just see bread and wine, then we're missing the point. We're missing the love. Because as we all know, the bread represents the broken body of Jesus. The wine represents his poured out blood. But more than that, it represents the love that the most famous verse in the Bible talks about, John 3.16, for God so loved the world, for God so loved each one of us. And as we sing this second song, such love, let's ponder that. We're going to uplift our offering during this song as well, so we'll remain seated. But even as you pass the bag around and you give of your finance, don't let that distract you from thinking about the, this incredible love that our Saviour and our Lord has for each one of us. our first slide tonight. I think words can be really, really important in the way that we use them. On Friday, I spent all day in London at board meetings on behalf of the Trussell Trust, and they were trying to identify three or four or five values or principles that ought to permeate the organization. And some of them you will understand, like compassion and justice and community. But then the other one that had been recommended by some people in management was subsidiarity. And I thought, yeah, that just rings, you like, I, I, and I sort of said, look, I understand what it means, but I suspect no one that comes as a guest to our food bank understands what it means. If you don't know what it means, don't worry. In an ideal world, a Baptist church ought to believe in it, but doesn't really matter. But there are other words that you come across, and even though they're not words that we normally use, you immediately get what they intend. And so the one on the screen, I've used it before, maybe a couple of years ago, and uh, the word wonderfulness now, it's not a word that you probably ever come across in a book. 
Uh, it's probably a dated word. Uh, I came across it because it was a word that was used uh, in the 18th century, in the 1730s, by Jonathan Edwards, who was a great American revivalist preacher, seen thousands and thousands and thousands, countless thousands, coming to faith in Christ through his preaching. And it was a word that he used that was often on the tip of his tongue. And even though it's not a word that we use, the word just tells you what it means, doesn't it? I mean, we could change it and say it's the magnificence of Christ's love for sinners. Or we could use a word which is overplayed today, like the awesomeness or the vastness. But um, in some ways, I quite like this word. And even though it's not one that we probably ever will read in the next two or three weeks in any journals or clips that we see on Facebook or whatever, it says something about something that's truly significant and valuable and important. So we're just going to have three little slides tonight as we think about the agony of Jesus in the garden. And as I said at the very start, I think sometimes we can become so familiar with the bread and the wine. And we forget what it really represents. Certainly, the last time I was in Israel and spent some time in the Garden of Gethsemane, it was one of the most meaningful parts of my visit. As we just sat under one of the olive trees and reflected alone on the story that's before us. And I've also found that sometimes looking at old pictures, even though sometimes they're not the sort of pictures you would ever choose to look at, or if you were going through an art gallery in Edinburgh or Glasgow or whatever, you might see these sorts of religious pictures and think, they're not really the sort of things that we buy into. You know. But sometimes they're helpful as we just focus upon them and reminds us of what's at the very center of the story. The wonderfulness of Christ's love for sinners. And as you look at this picture, there are a number of things that you would note that are there in the story itself. Almost that sense of aloneness. Um, Jesus separated from almost everyone else. And as we'll see further down in the service this evening, uh, Peter, James, and John, his three best buddies, just asleep. They just couldn't even keep their eyes open as these tears like drops of blood flow down the face of Jesus. And almost out of the corner of his eye, he could see Judas leading that posse of soldiers that would come and ultimately take him and take him to the beatings and the mockings and the scourgings and to the cross. On the very left-hand side of the picture, you'll see almost like a dead tree. And the artist is trying to remind us that ultimately there would be a wooden cross that would be stripped of its branches upon which one day Jesus would hang. But the most significant part is something that you almost can't even see. And in fact, if you look at the capital C of Christ, do you see a little figure there? It's actually meant to be an angel. And uh, it's almost unnoticeable. And the angel is carrying a cup. And of course, it's to remind us who ponder the story that that's exactly what was troubling Christ. He comes and he says, Father, 
if it's be possible, can this cup be taken away from me? You see, some commentators and some critics would say this was an angel bringing some comforting water or drink to Jesus. But most critics will say, no, as Jesus lifts his head, he realized that the cup of God's wrath is what he is facing. And we know that the cup symbolized the pouring out of God's wrath throughout Scripture. Let me just read two passages for you. Firstly, in Job 21. Yet how often is the lamp of the wicked snuffed out? How often does calamity come upon them? The fate God allots in his anger. How often are they like straw before the wind, the chaff swept away by a gale? It is said God stores up the punishment of the wicked for their children. Let him repay the wicked so that they themselves will experience it. Let their own eyes see their destruction. Let them drink the cup of the wrath of the Almighty. Whenever a holy God pours out his wrath upon sinful humanity and upon sinful world, it's described as a cup, the cup of God's wrath. Or in Psalm 75, God, we praise you for your name is near. You say, I chose the appointed time. It is I who judge with equity. No one from the east or the west, from the desert can exalt themselves. It is God who judges. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. And then again in the book of Revelation. John says, I saw another angel flying in midair and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language and people. He said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of judgment has come. A second angel came, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, a phrase that refers to the rebellious world in opposition against God. And a third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives its mark on their forehead, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of God's wrath. You see, when Christ was breaking in the Garden of Gethsemane, it wasn't just the physical torture that he wanted to try and get away from. Who would want to face that? It wasn't just even the mental onslaught, the fact that he had been betrayed, the fact that those closest to him had deserted him, it was the spiritual agony. It was the realization that as he died on the cross, because he loved each one of us, in some way that we cannot fully understand, there was that sense of separation between Christ and the Father. The only time when Christ is praying that he doesn't address God as Father is on the cross. There's that sense of distance. And so he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as he dies on that cross, the cup of God's wrath is poured out upon him. All the punishment that we deserved all the punishment that should have been upon him, us, was placed upon him. And so when he says, Father, if it's possible, can this cup be taken away? He's speaking of the cup of the wrath of God. That's why he's pouring his heart out 
That's why he's grieving. That's why, Father, is there some other way? And yet, not my will, but thine be done. And so he goes ahead to the cross. Because he loved this world. Because he loved each and one of us. As Ruth reminded us, for God so loved the world that he was willing to drink the cup of God's wrath in order that we might go free. It's a remarkable understanding. But it's something deep and mysterious at the very heart of what happened at Calvary. Let's take a moment of quiet just to reflect on that. We'll keep the slide on the screen. And then we're going to sing another great hymn together before we break bread. Let's stand as we continue in our worship together.
going to put that slide back on the screen again until after we've taken bread, but we have not asked anyone formally to pray tonight, just to give thanks for the bread, but it'll be nice if maybe three folks um, just took a moment to express your thanks, your appreciation in prayer, that Christ was willing to drink of the cup of suffering because of the wonderfulness of his love for sinners such as us. So don't worry if you're new to church or if you've been here 30 years. If in your heart you want to express your thanks to God, just one or another, let's two or three of us express our thanks to God and giving thanks also for this bread that reminds us of his broken body. Let's do that. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread represents my body, which is broken for you. So take and eat in remembrance of him.
Just for a moment, I want us to look at this second slide, which again is not by an Italian artist, but by a Danish artist, but again focused on the same theme, the agony of Christ in the garden. I think it's in Luke's gospel where it's recorded that as Jesus prayed, an angel came and strengthened him and comforted him. And so this second slide I've described is the wonderfulness of Christ's submission to his Father. I suppose we can almost take it for granted from the very commencement when Christ was born and right through his ministry, there was that sense that he was going to the cross and almost take it for granted that that's the way it was definitely going to turn out that we knew what the end of the story was going to be. And again, it's impossible for us as human beings to really get our heads around it. But what we see in the Garden of Gethsemane is a very real wrestling in the heart of Christ in terms of submitting his will to the will of the Father. And there's a lovely passage in the book of Hebrews, and this is what it says. During the days of the life of Jesus on earth, he offered up prayers and petitioned with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Almost definitely the writer here referring to his agony in the garden. And he was heard because of his reverent submission Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And he was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. I suppose we'll never fully understand what was going on in the mind of Christ as he faced Calvary as he wrestled with his father, as he contemplated what lay before him. But yet it was in that place of prayer that he was able to find ultimately submission to the will of the father. And that's really the second little point I want to leave with you tonight. I think if we're in a place where perhaps God is calling us either to serve him in a specific way, or perhaps we're just in a hard place and we're wondering why on earth God is asking us to go through this or to face this or to face that. God, is there not some other way? It is only as we wrestle with God in prayer that we will ever come to a place where we can submit our wills to him freely and say, God, I'm still not sure about this. <laughs> this is us speaking, not Christ. God, I, I'm still finding this really difficult. I'm still finding this a real struggle. I'm still not sure this is the path I want to go down. But as a result of praying intensely, wrestling with God, struggling in that place alone with God, only in that place do we finally come to a point where we say, not, not our will, God, but yours. And so, as we sing again and take wine in a moment, I want us to think about that wrestling in the garden for Christ. But maybe even as we drink wine, asking ourselves, is there, is there stuff that we're wrestling with in our garden, if you like, tonight? And uh, we have no peace about it because we haven't struggled in prayer and said, God, is this really what you want me to do? And God, I want to come to a place where I can just willingly and almost graciously hand over that future to you. Let's remain seated as we sing this next song. And as we 
remain seated and look at the table and ponder the words and ponder what David has said. Ask God to speak to us and allow us to speak to him and to worship him.
reminded of the wonderfulness of Christ's love for sinners and also the wonderfulness of Christ's submission to the Father. So again, before we drink wine together, would two or three just lead us in a simple prayer of thanksgiving and appreciation for what he has done for us. And so in the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. All of you drink it and be thankful. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death until he come.
just so a final little thought before we round off tonight, and that is the wonderfulness of Christ's patience with his disciples. I suppose whenever you look at pictures like this, you think they're all the same size, but this picture is actually only about 12 inches by 9. It's only a, it's hardly the size of a sheet of A4. And, uh, but again, just it's got so many of the same characteristics. Again, that sense of Christ alone. Again, the angel with the cup. The tree in the middle of the picture, almost already stripped bare, uh, representing the cross that one day Christ would go to. But again here, I think this picture portrays so clearly um, the disciples' inability just to stay awake and to be with Jesus at his moment of greatest despair. And every time I look at these pictures, I think if I was in that same situation, would it have been any different? Um, you know, what I have managed to stay awake would, would I have been there right beside Jesus holding his arm or whatever? And yet, Peter, James, and John, his three closest friends that you would expect to be with him at this time of great torment. And yet, to think that ultimately, even in spite of the fact that they fell asleep in the garden, how God takes them and makes them the pillar of the New Testament church. And that sort of provides us all with hope, doesn't it? Do you know that, that here are three guys that even at Christ's deepest, deepest, profoundest need, they let him down. And yet Jesus is so patient with us that he still takes these three, and you just think, almost failures. And yet he uses them so wonderfully later on in the history of the early church. And so as we, as we leave tonight, to some extent, I'm sure we can see each of ourselves in these three characters. Yeah, we've sat around the table and we've drunk wine and eaten bread together and reflected in our hearts with thanksgiving of all that Christ has done for us. And yet we know in our own hearts that we just mess up. And before, before we go to bed tonight, we'll have messed up again. And yet Christ, because of his deep love for us and because of his so great patience with us, takes us with all our failings and shortcomings and says, guys, I can still use you in the work of my kingdom. You know, even if we've messed up, this table reminds us it's not the end of the line because in Peter, James, and John, we see the wonderfulness of Christ's patience with his disciples. And in the light of that, it gives me hope to keep going tomorrow and in the week that lies ahead. God, take me with all my failures and all my shortcomings. And at the moments where I've let you down the most, where you've depended on me, nevertheless, um, thank you for being patient with me. Thank you that you continue to work out your purposes through me, through us in spite of that. Hello, Hannah. We're going to sing together again. Are you happy? Mummy. Mummy, mummy's away. As we come to the end of our evening together, it may be that you're here and you're a bit weary and you're a bit like these guys that David was talking about. I want to sing for you and maybe you want to sing with me as well. It's entirely up to you. A song that we could maybe use as a prayer if we're in that situation. Jesus, draw me ever nearer as I labor through the storm. As David said, he knows our frailties. He remembers that we are dust. And he's called us. So we need to follow. So I'm going to sing this. If you know it and you want to sing along, feel free. If you'd rather just sit and read the words and use this as a prayer yourself, then feel free to do that as well.
want to thank you at the close of this service for the wonderfulness of Christ's love for sinners such as us. We thank you for the awesomeness of Christ's submission to the Father. We thank you for the magnificence of his patience with each one of us day by day. And help us as we leave to know that we go forth as your children, saved by grace, still struggling with sin, but longing to please you and to serve you in every way. So go with us, we pray, into the week that lies ahead, and through us bring glory to yourself. In Christ's name, amen.